we don't feel like it, right? Jesus is working. Thank you for those great songs of worship this morning. Take a moment to pray for the families in Seoul, South Korea today who lost their sons and daughters this past weekend in a party that was meant to be a celebration and ended up being lost in the midst of a crowd. And so many lost their lives. Lift up your neighbors in Baltimore City who live in the midst of a crowded street and yet feel alone. Lost in the midst of the crowd. And give God your honest heart as well when you feel alone, even in the midst of people here sitting here this morning, when you feel like no one knows you, no one cares, no one understands your story, even though you're in the midst of a crowd. Lift, lift your heart to God and surrender it. He's got you. Father, make us agents of peace, wholeness, and human thriving, particularly for those who grab your attention so often in the scriptures, those who nobody else was paying attention to, Jesus grabbed onto. Make us agents to be like Jesus with skin on, to find one another, to find those who feel alone, even in the midst of the crowd. Thank you that you're at work even when it doesn't feel like it, that you are the way maker, promise keeper, miracle worker. You are the light in our darkness. And we thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, all the Lord's people said, amen. You may be seated in his presence. So glad you're out here this morning with us uh, in uh, our final, I can say it officially, Melissa, I see you with the big smile, in our winter jackets. This is our final outdoor service of this year. And, uh, and next, next Sunday, uh, due to the, the help of many folks, uh, you just got to call out Mary Lou for her great negotiations, but thank you. But we're going to be moving indoors to the BMI right here. And, um, and they love, you know, I, I want to give a shout out to the BMI folks too because they, they really have been gracious and they love us mostly due to relationships that Mary Lou has, has uh, uh, made happen. But, uh, so we're grateful to them. Here's what we have to do though. Everyone else is on board, the worship team, all the folks who set up. Got to get you on board right now and you on board uh, online. We have to move our service up by one half hour. We're going to start in the winter at 9.30. Raise your hand if you're in. You're going to have to get up a little bit earlier, all right? But we get to fall back next week anyway, right? So it's just going to feel like, like normal. But 9.30 starts through the winter. Then we'll come back out here Easter Sunday. Uh, that's a long way away, but anyway, uh, 9.30. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll put out more communication as the week goes on. 9.30. Somebody say 9.30. I'll arrive at 9.30. <laughs> that doesn't rhyme, but, you know, whatever. If you arrive at 9.45, you rhyme, but you're wrong. Okay. Hey, turn your Bibles, if you would, on your phones or your, Bible, your real Bible, if you have one. Not that it's not real on the phone, it just is. But turn it to uh, the first two chapters of Mark. Uh, we're going to go from the end of chapter 1 in verse 40 to the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 12. And we'll be spending our time there. Uh, I, I love doing church in the city. There's always a siren as you begin a sermon. Church, you know, I was thinking about um, my grandson who, um, I, I'm pretty sure this was last year when my grandson Pax was 
two-ish, right, two, three last year, and he, pu he put on, um, he was three, whatever, but he, he had a Spider-Man ma mask on in, the, in a visit be just before Halloween, and I pretended to be like, oh, it's a superhero, it's, it's Spider-Man, and this and that, and he, and he called out, he said, you know, after I did that for a moment, he, he ripped his mask off and said, Papa, it's me! He wanted me to know that it was him, and, and that was so important to him. And I, I, I think that in this season, we, we have to come to grips in the scriptures today. There's so much uh, question of identity going on. How many of you have played hide-and-seek before? Raise your hand if you've played hide-and-seek. Raise your hand if you've played it with a child. All right. So it's different. If you play hide-and-seek with adults, that's a thing. But with a child, at least up until about eight, like I remember playing hide-and-seek with my son Cole, and uh, he's my youngest, and this was years ago. He's, he's in his 30s now. Um, if you play hide-and-seek with Cole now, he'll be in Kuala Lumpur before you know it. But, but up until about the age of six, Cole would play this way. He'd come up, he'd tug on my shirt, he'd go, Daddy, Daddy, let's play hide-and-seek. You count to a million, and, and I'll go hide. And I go, okay, let's play. One, two, hundred thousand, two hundred, nine hundred. Ready or not, here I come. And I would hear his trail of laughter as he went off to inevitably hide in his closet in his room. And so I would wander around a little bit, say, I wonder where Cole is. And I'd hear the laughter. And I'd walk into his room and I'd say, I wonder where Cole is. He'd say, in the closet. And, and, and his closet was one space, but with two different doors. And, and I would say, I wonder what door he's behind. And you'd see the closet shake like a horror movie, right? It would, and he'd be beating on it, this one! And I'd open the door, and Cole would leap out, and he'd wrap his arms around my neck. And he would say, I win! Let's play again! And, the, and it's because for a child, the object of hide-and-seek is to be found. That's the game, to be found. And, and we find that in, in this scripture today. Hide and seek for adults becomes a very complex thing. But I would submit to you today that it's, the object is still to be found. And God is all about, from the, from the creation story, Corey Barnes, from the creation story, God was searching for Adam and Eve, searching them out. God wants to find you. And I think he builds that into our DNA. Let's take a look uh, at this, this complex story we see. We have two stories today. This morning we see Jesus at work. That's our series title. Jesus at work in this complex arena of human adult hide and seek. We're going to see this in the healing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic. And I'm going to be working from the title this morning, Compassion at Work. Compassion at Work. Now, these interactions, these stories are tied together by the way they reveal the truth about Jesus, two things really, Jesus' flawless knowledge of human nature and, and, somebody say and, the gracious compassion of God that drives him to find us, to seek us out. Let's look first at the healing of the leper. It begins in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1, and just look at verse 41, uh, 40, 41, and 42. Take a look. Matthew tells us that this incident took place uh, immediately after the delivery of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So as Jesus was coming down the mountain, this leper met him, and this church is an emotionally charged scene. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him, begged him, begged him, begged him, 
on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I mean, this man, this man is like coal in the closet. I'm in here. I'm right here. Find me. I'm here. If you're willing, make me clean. Verse 41, Jesus was indignant. And we're going to come back to that. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, church, the man's uh, illness likely required him to hide from society. He, he had to hide away from populated areas. He had to avoid contact with others. And doing so would lessen people's fears in the community, and it would actually boundary him from constant harassment. Now, Corey talked last week about how Jesus sought solitude in prayer, and all of us uh, at some level know the temporary benefits of choosing solitude. There's some great stuff that can happen there. But church, listen to me. Isolation and solitude are not the same thing. They look alike. They're both characterized by aloneness. When we choose to be alone, um, that is solitude. But when we are forced to be alone, that is isolation and that is torture. That is murderous. That kills the spirit. Now, Jesus removes the disease. And even better, it's this, the text says the man is made clean or the man is cleansed. So the language here, church, suggests more than, than just the absence of an illness. It suggests restoration. This man can now regain relationship. He can return to society. He can interact with others. Just an easy afternoon's work for Jesus, right? Well, not quite. Not quite. Notice what happens when the story ends. Take a look at verses 43 to 45. The cleansed man ignores Jesus' instructions. It's, it's never a good idea, by the way, to ignore Jesus' instructions. Just That's a little aside there. But he ignores Jesus' instructions to keep a discreet silence about what happened. And instead, he broadcasts the news. He shouts it everywhere. And in the wake of this new reality, interest in Jesus becomes so intense. It's just magnified by a million Interest in Jesus becomes so intense that he can, according to the scripture here, no longer enter a town openly. One translation puts it, he must inhabit lonely places outside of population centers, out of view of the crowd. So Jesus here effectively, Mary Lou, trades places with the man who was cleansed. And, and that wasn't Jesus' plan. That wasn't the plan he had in mind. Just prior to this story, and Corey preached it last week in Mark 1.38, Jesus had declared, take a look at it, that, he, that it was his mission to proclaim the message in the towns. Now, because of one little dermatological healing feat, he finds himself mostly confined either inside homes where he's not seen by the public, and we're going to see that in a minute, or he's confined to the wilderness. And, and to be fair, we... We do see throughout the Gospels that the multitudes find him wherever he is, and we're going to see that in a moment. But he's now had to alter his plan. Now, notice in our reading that Jesus appears agitated from the very beginning of this story. Look back at verse 41 at the very beginning. The NIV, the NIV translation, which we mostly use here at this church, reads this way. Jesus was indignant. Now, let me do some translation work with you for a moment, and this is important. My mentor, and Corey, I think you know this, but my mentor and longtime professor at Gordon-Conwell years and years ago was Dr. Gordon Fee, and he, he was so special to me uh, 
uh, in Greek language and exegesis of the scriptures in, in learning so much about how to study the scriptures. Uh, I took every course he offered uh, at Gordon-Conwell, and I was his fellow in Greek uh, for a, w one season. But Dr. Fee used to argue this, and, and this was a quote in his obituary, and I, uh, you can find it in Christianity Today this week. We lost him this week. Um, but he, he would say this, done well, biblical interpretation is a touch of lightning. Don't you love that? We called him the scholar on fire. Well, church, studying the form, context, the translation nuances of Scripture is so significant because Scripture, and I've said this before in my sermons, it's not simple. Don't, don't get caught in thinking we don't have any work to do as we interact with the Scriptures. It is incumbent upon us to study, to discern, and do the work that it takes. So let me, let me take you into one uh, small dimension of this. There's a big question about one word of the original Greek in this passage, and it has to do with this translation of indignant. Some of the ancient manuscripts, and therefore some translations, like the ESV, say that Jesus was splagnizomai, that's the Greek, that means moved to compassion. But other ancient manuscripts say Jesus was onizdomai, which means move to anger or indignant. And there are good arguments, church, for either one being the original word. Because when Jesus orders the man to keep quiet about healing in verse 43, something like a snarl, it says a stern warning, accompanies his warning. And I lean toward the translation, which Dr. Fee leaned toward too, so I'm leaning with Dr. Fee. He was the editor of the NIV translation, so, you know, we've got it going on. Uh, I lean towards this, that Jesus was indignant. Let's, 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 add, let's talk about why that could be. What, what are the, what's going on here? Jesus is bothered throughout this interaction, and we cannot run too quickly uh, over this point. We can project from other parts of Scripture what bothers Jesus. Where does Jesus get angry? Where does Jesus get indignant when we see him at work in other things? Well, he's bothered when he confronts, when he confronts greed, the money changers in the temple. You remember that. He's bothered with the religiosity of the Pharisees. It bothers him. It angers him. He's bothered by human stuckness at the pool. Do you want to get well? He's bothered by the lack of faith of his own disciples on the boat. He's, he's even bothered consistently by the focus on miracles rather than reconciliation with God. He gets bothered by that. So in a society where many illnesses were feared and people suffering from these diseases were marginalized and isolated, uh, you know, there was an assumption that it had something to do with something they'd done wrong. For Jesus to speak to this man, to touch this man, sets Jesus in opposition to the powers that be, and has he, he breaks the rules of the social system that kept the clean and the unclean separate. And we still do this in one way or another in our culture today, where we want to separate people, the truth from the lies, the Republicans from the Democrats, the racial, the gender. We want to separate people. We still do this. It's in our human nature, and it bothers Jesus. And his willingness to address the man's dire condition causes this huge communal curiosity that was massive. And, and it's a curiosity about miracles, and it forces Jesus to alter the path that he had planned to walk in the towns. To, it, it alters the work that he'd come to do. It alters it. And Jesus, here we see, a, uh, I'm sorry, church, we see a foreshadowing of the cross, don't we? Jesus' encounter with the leper suggests that God doesn't just come near. God doesn't just lend a hand. 
God, through Christ, establishes solidarity with those who suffer, taking their place in this story and certainly our place on the cross. Grace City, lifting up the lowly takes effort. It's work. It's exhausting. And it alters the trajectory of where Jesus was going, and it will alter our trajectory as well. It could be as simple as, you know, I hadn't planned to go to the trunk or treat this afternoon, but it's my church doing that thing. It's for the kids of South Baltimore. I'm going to show up and tell the kid they're loved. That could alter your trajectory this Sunday after. It can be that simple, or it can be much more complex. Now listen, church, perhaps, and you've heard this from Dr. King and others, perhaps the arc of history bends toward justice, but it doesn't bend without the intentional participation of God's people. It doesn't just happen without our intentional decisions and choices. In this world, church, compassion and neglect exist side by side, and choices must be made that will tell our story, that will project our trajectory in the kingdom of God. What will be our story? So now, pay close attention as his next encounter with the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, turn to chapter 2, this next encounter illustrates some strategic ways to practice the principles of Jesus at work. And it begins with another interruption. As chapter 2 begins in verses 1 and 2, take a look. Um, it, the crowd has gathered at a house. Jesus is inside. And this crowd is expecting something magnificent to happen. Something miraculous to happen. They're looking for miracles. They don't quite yet, not everybody knows who Jesus is. It's the very beginning of his ministry. But they'd heard some things. He grew up down the street. He has a fine voice. He speaks with authority. I, and, and better yet, here's the rumor. I heard he healed a few people. I heard he even healed a leper. He even touched a leper. We got to go see this guy. So this enormous crowd gathers around listening and expecting. And Jesus is speaking in the house the word to them. He's probably riffing on his major theme. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Believe the good news. This is in the first chapter of Mark 1.15. You can take a look at this is his theme. But as he preached, church, in this house, as he preached, little flecks of dust began to fall from the ceiling. Take, just imagine that. Look up. Shards of, shards of splinters of wood begin to fall from the ceiling. Imagine. Some mud falls until finally... A gaping hole in the ceiling shows some faces ringed around it. Part of the roof has crumbled into the crowd all around them. Mud and splinters, dust all around because the crowd was thick inside. And then the crowd inside saw the people, the faces, the five friends on the roof. They begin to lower a paralyzed man slowly, slowly, slowly into the middle of the room. They, people are just, how do we make room for this? Hide and seek has become something brand new here. It's a complex game. Now, Jesus, we can safely say, <laughs> this is kind of like you last week, Corey, say, I think we can do this exegesis here, but we can safely say that Jesus has a gift for improvisation. I heard a story once about um, uh, Wynton Marsalis, who is a fave jazz trumpeter of mine. I love his music, and his father, Ellis Marsalis, and his brother, Branford Mar Marsalis, and uh, all of them jazz musicians. But anyway, Wynton Marsalis was playing a gig one night, and uh, 
in the middle of one of the songs, uh, someone's cell phone started to ring. And, and that can be a showstopper. It can't even as a preacher if your cell phone goes off. You know, I, my cell phone has gone off in the middle of sermons before when I forget to shut it off. Anyway, it can be a showstopper. But, but the jazz legend, Marsalis, he didn't stop. He didn't miss a beat, John. He started playing the ringtone on his trumpet. <laughs> and he got into it. And they did those jazz 12-beat riffs. Until he, and then he resolved it back into the original melody. He made it part of the song. And that church is what Jesus does here with the paralytic coming through the roof. He embraces the interruption into his message. Remember, don't forget, he is preaching about the kingdom of God. He's preaching about repentance, believing, reconciliation with God. That's the theme. And in the kingdom of God, it is often the most marginalized who grab the attention of God. We see this throughout the scriptures in the parables like the laborers in the vineyard. They grab the attention of God. It's the fishermen on the shore that no one's paying attention to that grab Christ's attention and he makes them disciples. It's the prodigal son, not the elder son, who grabs the attention of God. It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It's the lepers. And now even this, this paralytic, the man lowered through the roof. And what is highlighted here, of course, is the quality of faith. This is the faith that dresses you and me with, as Jesus with skin on. This dresses us, this kind of faith. There are three remarkable and beautiful aspects of it here, and here they are. First, these men model Jesus by daring to do the difficult. Somebody say difficult. Church, this is where faith lives and breathes, when we agree to do the difficult. It's not easy to bring this man to the Lord. They had to carry him, who knows how far, through the streets. When they found the doorway blocked, they had to carry him up an outside stairway, a narrow stairway. We, we don't know how heavy the man was, but it's not easy to carry a full-grown adult up a narrow stairway, and they had to do that. Uh, and, and all of us can think back to those times when, you know, I was watching Lil yesterday at, with Sharp Kids at a table at the Fall Festival, and she's down there again last this yesterday morning, and, and, and we're standing, and I'm just thinking, Lil, there has to be times where she says, I don't want to do this. It's constant. It's tiring. It's hard. And if you saw any of the pictures we were able to take yesterday, it's just like, it's phenomenal because she's doing the difficult. Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you, Lil, but you're doing the difficult. <laughs> Secondly, they, they, they not only dare to do the difficult, they dare to do the unorthodox. This is difficult too, but it, but it supplies a different dimension. Watch this. When, when they found the door block, they didn't wait around hoping to get tickets like we do for Hamilton downtown here. How many have been able to do that in the last month or so? Yeah, there you go. They don't do that. They did what was necessary for their friend. And they risked the displeasure not only of the owner of the house. I, I can't imagine they were excited. But they risked the displeasure of everyone there who would already gotten into the meeting. And notice that Jesus never rebukes them. He never criticizes their interruption. He never does. We have no recorded incidents in which Jesus condemns the interruption by someone in need who, put, who presses through to him despite the disapproval of those around. What he condemns is those who would, who would condemn them or put them in that position in the first place. These five friends dared to do the unorthodox in church. I love that characteristic of followers of Christ. I hope we see more of it in the years ahead. We need that characteristic in Baltimore City. Dare to do the unorthodox, to get unstuck, to be transformed, and to defy the status quo as followers of Christ. 
Church, few things, and we see this in, in Revelation about the churches, but few things are more deadly in the church than the fear of doing something that might be criticized. I think the church gets criticized. So these men dare to do the difficult, they dare to do the unorthodox, and thirdly, they dare to do the costly, and this is the biggest dimension of all. Somebody had to pay for that roof. Imagine the reaction of the owner when, when he suddenly dis, dis, discovers this large hole in his roof. He probably wondered if his homeowner's policy was going to cover this. Somebody had to pay the bill. Somebody had to repair the roof. Surely it was one, if not all, of these men. They dared to do the costly for the sake of their friend who'd been marginalized. But not only financially, church, they risked their reputation too, right? They sold out. They sold out for, for on this day for the kinds of things that lead to ridicule and social rebuke. And most significantly, they risked, they were willing to risk their young, growing faith in this Jesus as they laid it on the line for their friend and laid him before Jesus. Church, compassionate work is difficult work. It's unorthodox and it's costly. Now, Mark has emphasized all of this in order that we might learn the heart of the story. In response to all the hide-and-seek human drama that's going on here, when he saw their faith, watch this in verse, verse 5, take a look. Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's like a mic drop. Like everybody's going, what? I mean, his friends had brought him there hoping for healing. They got forgiveness. The paralytic, wanting, needing a physical healing, got forgiveness. Got forgiveness. Why forgiveness? And there's, there's lots of historical background about Jewish culture in the ancient Near East that reveals how physical illness was thought of as the result of sinfulness, and I'd be happy to talk about that with any of you over coffee if you want to talk more about that. But I think something else is going on. I think this moment represents a higher dimension of Jesus at work. For instead of treating the obvious, the man who, as, as a man who needed to be healed, he engages with this man at the beginning of his ministry very much like he engaged with me when I was 14 years old and was considering the gospel for the very first time. He engages with him like he wants to engage with me and you when we encounter Christ for the very first time. And here, here's, the, here's what's going on. He engages as people who are distinctly loved by God and at the same time, distinctly distant from God due to sin. Two realities at the same time. It's a paradox. Grace City, here Christ begins the healing of this man, begins the healing by reconciling the relationship between God and the paralyzed man. He does it first. It's the foundation. And church, if we want to know healing in our lives, if we want to know what it's like to be made whole, we must know forgiveness. Grace City, don't give this dimension up in this post-whatever deconstructing age. It's tempting. But we've become so resistant to the idea of sin and confession and repentance. It's almost become human heresy to acknowledge our need of forgiveness. But human wholeness and human thriving will only come in right relationship, reconciled with God and then with one another. It's profound, it's charged, it's complex. I get it, but church, it's free. Like, you're, we, we, we resist the free gift of God in Jesus Christ of forgiveness 
an inclusion at the table. We get a seat at the table of the one who made us, and we go, no, I'm good. I'm good. And then you see the scribes. Look at verses 6 and 7. You see the scribes listening in, and for once, they make a really good point. I mean, I have no argument with them here. They ask this, who can forgive sins but God alone? And yeah, I, that's a good, good question. That's true, right? God alone can forgive sins. So who is this guy? They're asking the right question. Love these scribes. Love these scribes. You haven't heard that in a sermon in a while. The way these scribes understood it, God was distant. God was up there, somehow out there. The only person who had access to atone for the sins of the people was the high priest who did it once a year in the Holy of Holies. Go behind the curtain, we'll atone for the sins of people. Sacrifice an animal, do the thing, do what we need to do. That's how it works. But on this day, on, somebody say this day. Church, on this day when the roof crumbles, Jesus declares that there will no longer be a separation between God and his creation, his human creation. That's done. In fact, in fact, in fact, God was right there in their midst at work doing the difficult, doing the costly to bring them into right relationship with their creator and with one another. So as proof Keep reading, verse 10 and 11. So as proof of his authority to forgive sin, he performs now the very earthy miracle of a physical hearing, healing. Stand up, he said to the paralytic. Take your mat and go to your home. He's still trying to get them to keep quiet, but it's way too late for that now. Grace City, we must understand why the roof had to crumble in the first place. We've got to grasp this. The text says that there was no room for anyone else not even in the front door. And that strikes me a little odd. I don't know about you, but that's a little odd for me. Now, we can assume that the five men tried to bring the paralytic in through the main doorways. And I was taught when I was growing up, Corey, that someone who might need a little extra help to get in, you, you would clear out a little space for that person. You might even give up your seat for that person. But here, the people inside did not or would not make any room. And we might look around and say, well... We don't have that problem at Grace City. We don't have that problem today. I'm not like that. I'd give up my space. But Grace City, there are other ways of crowding people out. There's lots of ways we crowd people out. An empty seat doesn't mean you've made room. Even our yes doesn't mean we fully grasp the work of Jesus. I don't think we have enough words, John, to, to convey yes in English. We just got one word. Because our yes can mean yeah, I'm prepared to align with you and, and do the minimum. I, I can say yes, and I'll, say, yeah, I'll, I'll get on social media, I'll give that a few likes. You can align my name with yours, and that's, that's my yes. It's the minimum. Or, on the other side, our yes can mean, I am all in. I stand wholeheartedly. I embrace, I devote myself to the kingdom work without reservation. And I want to tell you, church, life is way better if our partnership with Jesus at work reflects that kind of a yes. It's just better. A minimum yes. I'm, uh, yeah, I belong to Jesus. Yeah. And I do the minimum. 
Being all in Grace City is, is rare. It really is. But it means something. It changes things. It makes the difference. And I'm so grateful for you folks and for the folks who set us, you know, the folks who set us up here Sunday morning, they're all in to do that work. It's, we need to see more of that. We need to see more in this story than Jesus' power to heal. Because that's what the people around him were so interested in is, is healing. But Mark is warning us that if the structures we build are so narrow that they do not allow people on the margins to access the grace and human thriving offered to us by Jesus Christ, then our journey and our structures must be altered as we play this human game of hide and seek. Sometimes the roof has to crumble before we can see what the church must be about. The roof has to crumble. I'm not calling for that here. I like this roof. This is good. But that's when we see what the church must be. As the worship team comes up, let me say these things. The promise of compassion at work. The promise of compassion at work is that the compassion of Christ is always ready to turn towards us. Many of you have experienced that for, for a long time. And if you haven't and you want to understand what it is that to have the compassion of Christ turn toward you, God's love turned towards you, the goodness of God turned towards you, then by all means, come and talk to us. Make an appointment with us. We'd love to talk to you about what that can mean in your life when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. But that's the promise of compassion at work. He is always seeking us, even when we're at our best hiding. And he's good at finding us, by the way. That's the promise. But the challenge of compassion at work is to go and do likewise. That's the challenge. To be Jesus with skin on. Practicing compassionate work for others. Always seeking the other. The marginalized. The unloved. The kid at the table at school that no one would sit with in the cafeteria. You remember those times? Maybe it was you. Maybe it was me. But those kinds. The kid, the, the person in your neighborhood that nobody likes. Always seeking. Setting aside all of our ideas about who and what we think is important and turn toward our neighbors to find them and bless them and to heal them. Every, listen, church, every unexpected intrusion, every inconvenient crisis, those times of uncertainty and change that you will have by the afternoon today, those circumstances that you will see of injustice around you, all of them are moments of opportunity to demonstrate the goodness of God running after us, seeking even the least of these who have so many reasons to hide. Come find me. I'm in the closet. This door, open it up. Find me. And the world notices when that happens. Take a look at verse 12. This ends our time. Verse 12, he got up, the paralytic, got up, took his mat, Walked out in full view. It walked out in full view. How did he get through the crowd? I don't know. Maybe he floated above. I, you know, it's a miracle anyway. And watch this. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, and I love this, we've never seen anything like this. You think? That's the power that belongs to us. Compassionate work. Let's stand and let's sing of the goodness of God. And as you sing these verses, think of these stories and becoming an agent of the goodness of God. And we'll be back with our benediction.